Greetings, everyone. I am Dr. Dave Donahue, and welcome to the Health Rules Podcast. We are excited you have joined us. This week is going to be something completely different. We had the great opportunity and privilege to interview um, Dr. Jeff Geller. Uh, he is a family doc in the state of Massachusetts. In fact, he is the family doc of the year in the state of Massachusetts, or just concluded his year of being the family doc of the year in March 2021. Dr. Geller has a lot of wisdom to share around two important topics. One of them is nuts and bolts medicine uh, for, for doctors, and it's how to run effective group programs. Group programs is something we in the lifestyle medicine field appreciate is a really powerful technique. Um, it's just an efficient way of getting message out and, and uh, in, in a group manner, um, in, in batches rather than one at a time, so that you can have those longer in-depth conversations uh, and broadcast the message more widely. But also it's such a powerful way for people to share and connect. Uh, and Dr. Geller has taken this to the next level um, because the other topic that he addresses is loneliness or social isolation. And that's, that's an area where we're, we're appreciating more, more in recently in medicine that it's so important for our health. It's a major determinant in how the quality of our lives as well as the quantity of our lives. It's been quantitated that uh, people who live are socially isolated, and it depends on the study, but you're anywhere from a 1.3 to a 2.8-fold increased risk of death in a given year. Uh, it, we, it has been found that this varies by gender and race. African-American men face the gravest consequences when socially isolated, uh, and white men suffer the least. But even for, for white men, it's, it's a very significant contributor. It's like a 60% increased risk of death in a given year if you uh, fall into the, the socially isolated category. So very, very important topic. And as Dr. Geller has found in his decades of leading group programs, that probably the most important thing we can address in a medical practice is the loneliness, the social isolation of our patient population. Uh, in Dr. Geller's mind and what he's discovered is that uh, if, if you can improve the loneliness in someone's life, you improve everything. You see meaningful medical metrics improve, hemoglobin A1C scores, body weight, blood pressure, etc., uh, etc. Et so very, very important that we find ways of effectively addressing loneliness, social isolation. And what he has found that the, the most powerful tool in his toolbox is to address that problem is is the group program. And he's taken this to the level where almost everything he does in his medical practice is a group program, which is just mind-blowing. Um, this is very unusual in a medical setting. Most of us, almost all of us, are geared around the whole paradigm of the one-on-one -on -one visit. It's one doctor or provider sitting in a room with one patient, maybe a caregiver there to kibbutz. But for the most part, it is a one-on-one -on -one experience. But this, he even does uh, annual physicals in a group setting. And, and he even does acupuncture. He's, he's an integrative medicine doctor and, as a consequence, is able to be very, very creative in bringing uh, all sorts of therapies to the group programming world that most people would think uh, you know, don't lend themselves to, to, to group visits. 
but he's done it effectively uh, for years. Um, it's, it's, I hope you'll find the discussion really stimulating and cool. One aside, uh, wearing my lifestyle medicine hat, uh, he chooses as an example of the kind of advice you want to give patients to eat more eggs because eggs are healthy again. And we hear this a lot, but I, and far, far be it from me to question the wisdom of someone else because people, doctors and, and others have wisdom that I don't have. But I am persuaded by the most recent meta-analysis on the topic of eggs that finds that the more eggs you consume, the earlier, the higher is your death rate. So we don't, we don't think eggs in the lifestyle medicine world are healthy, and I'll include the reference to that meta-analysis on the page that we're going to build on healthrules.org. So I encourage you to go and check out our website, healthrules.org, and find the page related to this discussion because it is an amazing uh, mind-altering discussion, in my opinion, uh, really has inspired me to make some changes uh, in, in our medical practice. We are poised to send out a survey to all of our patients to assess uh, the degree of loneliness, the degree of social isolation. I think it's that powerful. I would, re would really like to track this as a key metric for um, the health of our, our patient population at, at Progressive Health of Delaware. So with that, I will introduce you to the famous, or should be famous, Dr. Geller. Uh, I never had this kid's going to be a lawyer, but I feel like I got a kid. <laughs> Let's get going. Let me just put this stuff away here. How are you? I'm great. How are you, Jeff? I'm doing great. <laughs> so um, let me go find a nice place to sit down. Yeah. I appreciate it. We have a short time. And I'm recording, uh, so if it's all right with you, um, let's jump in. And uh, if you don't mind, uh, could you uh, tell us a, a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I'm uh, Jeff Geller. I'm a family doctor. Uh, I've been practicing for 26 years. I've spent my whole career in a city called Lawrence, Massachusetts, uh, initially working at a community health center and now working in private practice. Uh, most of the things I've, I've done in my life um, surround about bringing people together, creating connection, reducing stress, and those benefits in medicine. So that's what I'm most a champion of. Nice. Well, as, as we uh, spoke before, so the goal of this conversation is to come out with um, some kind of checklist, a, a sort of a a, a clinical protocol or, or a, um, a list of steps that people can follow to be healthy. And it could, it could be uh, directed at patients or it could be directed at clinicians. So I'm wondering, do you have, you, you've got a lot of wisdom and a lot of expertise. I'm wondering if you have anything in mind. Oh, you know, like what makes people happy? <laughs> I mean, I, I'm definitely a big proponent of, um, you know, I, I, I don't think that there's a path that you have to follow. I think that there's an easy path that's usually presented. And then uh, with a little more work, you get somewhere else. And then with a lot more work, you get somewhere else. And, um, you know, it's the same thing with, with everybody. You know, if you think about a patient, there's someone who might uh, have high cholesterol and they want to eat all the right foods and exercise all the day and, and do that. There are other people who might say, okay, I don't want to work quite hard. They might want medicines or supplements. 
or, or both, right? And then there might be a third group that just says, ah, what do you know about cholesterol anyway? <laughs> who cares? And uh, who cares, right? So you got to, if you really want to do something special, you probably got to pick something that you care about and that you're willing to put the work in. And I think that's kind of where it is. And then sometimes as a clinician, we can really motivate people who weren't at that point, you know, to, to get to a point where they realize that they're special and that people care about them and that even if they don't care about their cholesterol. Well, let, let, how know. about this? So one of, one of your areas of major expertise is uh, group visits. Uh, That's right. And uh, in particular group visits, which, which you use as a means to combat loneliness, which you've mm -hmm. become convinced is, is a major cause of maladies uh, in the world. So how about we build a checklist for clinicians to kind of do what you do uh, and combat loneliness sure. through uh, group therapy. So, you know, I, I do similar things with an individual as I do with a group. And, um, you know, it's really about finding out who someone is, not just medically, but who they are as, as, a, as a human, finding out uh, the things that they're interested in. And I suppose sharing a little bit of yourself, right? So that uh, you know, to, to build a relationship, sometimes there can be a, a little bit of a wall between maybe a clinician and a patient. And uh, some, sometimes if you're treating loneliness, that is, that has to be softened a little bit, or you at least need a window or a door or some way to get through the wall. <laughs> and, um, you know, so in groups, we're trying to help people build relationships with other people. And uh, it's not just an opinion. There's a lot of research that shows that loneliness is bad for you. Uh, more heart attacks, uh, more. Um, uh, I, so I, I believe everything, right? <laughs> but a five times greater chance of dying, I believe in any five year period for people who are lonely. You know, and, and certainly maybe someone who's lonely may not take care of themselves. So, so to me, I can't think anything that valuable than trying to help someone build relationships. Certainly some of the people I meet aren't lonely, you know, and that's fantastic. You know, I, I've heard a wide range of what percentage of the population is lonely. And, and I actually believe in this thing that I call uh, situational loneliness. And uh, I don't, that's just a term I use. I don't know that there's any research about it, but I think someone can become lonely very quickly in some circumstances. And, and, you know, if, if you have uh, suddenly were diagnosed with something horrific and didn't want your family to know, you're alone with that. You know, if, if you're, uh, you know, so you could think of many situations where someone suddenly has something happen, they lose a job, they, they uh, a relationship ends. Uh, uh, and certainly in our field, chronic illnesses or diagnoses are being labeled. <laughs> something with a mental illness. You know, these are all things that can change you in a, in a moment. So yeah, so when we do, when I have a patient come to the office, the first thing is making them feel comfortable in a way that they can really share with you how they feel. You know, mm -hmm. not just, um, so how's, how's your diet going? You know, but who are you living with? Are your parents alive? Do you, what are your goals for the next several years? What do you do that keeps you busy? You know, the, these are the opening questions. And in a group, 
you know, you could you could ask those same questions. How are we doing? You know, and 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 I have certain strategies to reduce loneliness, and uh, a lot of groups have adopted these over the years. I've been doing them for 25 years because my my group visits were initially to reduce loneliness. <laughs> a lot of group visits nowadays are to treat chronic illness, and then they people start to learn you got to address the the loneliness. So I came about it backwards or forwards. I came about it forwards. <laughs> You came about it forwards. Everybody else got it backwards. <laughs> yeah, but at the time, who knew, right? And um, so, yeah, so, you know, it's about creating safe environments, especially in a group. You know, individual, it's easier to, to build relationships. But in a group, there, there probably is someone you don't like if there's 20 people. And there's probably some people you do like. And then there's these people in the middle. And uh, when you enter a room, you you know, my goal is to really facilitate these re relationships and have everyone kind of like everyone else. You know, how do you make someone, you know, regardless of political views, regardless of uh, differences that are obvious on the outside, and then the, the subtle differences in the insides. Um, and so, you know, we often will break people into small groups so that they can have that intimacy in a large group. You know, that's something that I think I was an, an innovator in, uh, even though it seems like common sense. And then the, uh, um, you know, when I'm with a patient individually in the office, you want them to not just to feel that you care about them, they want you to actually care about them. So <laughs> when, when I'm talking to a patient, I try and connect to them to a point where I kind of care about them, right? So I actually don't know as much about you as I could. You know, but it would be nice to know what your context in the world is and what your connection to humanity is. And, and I, you know, almost everyone you can like. And, and when I like that patient, then I kind of know, okay, we're going to be fine. You know, they're, they're going to have some support from me. And then I guess the, the last piece, though, is you can't carry all that weight yourself as a clinician. So that's where groups are great because you create relationships between people in the groups or Maybe people come to see my receptionist, or maybe they're coming to see me, or maybe they're coming to see their friend, you know, for an exercise type of class, or, you know, so, so to prevent yourself from burning out, you're not the only one worried about them. You create a whole community of people who worry about each other and uh, encourage you to be your best self, you know, so that you want to live because you know you're special and important and invested. I'm sorry, not sure which questions I've answered, but you know, I I, I think that uh, loneliness it's not there's no unfortunate template other than this broad right to know someone, tell them you like them for who they are because you do, and then encourage them to be to be healthy and ask them what they need you know to reach their goals. <laughs> so you're not faking the, the caring for people you really do care because it's not something that you can fake effectively i love that um so you're really leading with that caring uh, attitude uh, it's interesting i think the business world has come across the idea of psychological safety which is uh their fancy terms meaning basically you let everybody talk in a meeting otherwise they feel kind of dejected and left out um and i, I think that um probably an effective group therapy session in a medical setting similarly has to engage everybody and make sure everybody gets a chance to speak 
Um, and if and if it's too big a group, then the, the small groups uh, can really achieve that, right? When you do small groups, do you split into different corners of the room, or do you, how do you do that? Yeah, so you know, I, I think you've nailed a little a little of it. But I don't make people speak who do don't want to. You know, I, I think there are introverts and and there are extroverts, and 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 I'm not going to get into the true diagnosis of what an introvert and an extrovert is. But people who feel comfortable talking in a group tend to talk more and your role might be to to not list, help the group not listen to them as much and there are a ton of strategies and uh, vice versa there are quieter people and so you can do things such as you know have people write notes of what are the questions we should talk about today um, yeah when we break in groups online yeah you, you you make a zoom room and you you make your little you know breakout sessions and yeah in the actual space we break into small, small um, circles. Oh, lost you for a second. You break into small circles, and you know I like to have three people. You know, because you never know if someone will feel uncomfortable with one other person. So at least three, maybe four. But but groups also have a life of their own. You know, I have some groups that have existed for over twenty years. I've been over twenty five years, right? So some groups they come in, they don't need me at all. They all hug each other. They talk about things. I might go in with, okay, today I want to tell you to get your vaccine or whatever I'm going to say, right? And then why don't you break into small groups and today let's do it by, you know, everyone line up. Uh, let's do it by height. Let's line up by age. Let's have the oldest person talk to the youngest person and then, you know, kind of not truly random, but, but slowly the, the whole group gets to meet everyone else. And in a safe, right, in a safe way. I don't know what that business term was, but yeah, in a safe way. Uh, psychological safety. So yeah. um, you mentioned to me earlier in an earlier conversation, some interesting uh, research. Uh, you say there's a fair bit of research and we didn't even get to talk about your uh, nonprofit that you run. But, mm. and I, I definitely want to touch on that, but um, the research, you, you shared some of the aspects that um, are key to having an effective group and making people feel comfortable. And you mentioned uh, that the group has to be, everything has to be the same, very familiar circumstances every single time, same time of day, same, um, same location, et cetera, right? Right. And, and I don't think the research from that is necessarily from group visits, you know, that's almost advertising technique, <laughs> you know, research on psycho, how humans are. Right. But to have a successful program, um, you know, I, so I work in an underserved community. So my patients can't take time off from work and, and, and change their schedule too easily. But yeah, even the time of day. But if you want to build relationships and reduce loneliness, you want the same people in the group you want the same receptionist, you want the same medical assistant, you want the same clinician. If you have a exercise or a massage therapist or an acupuncturist helping you with the group, you want the same person. Anything you can do that, that might create a connection where people could like each other, you're, you're trying to do. And yeah, if, if you feel that, um, you know, there's just, uh, you're not, you know, like if I didn't think I was gonna talk to you again, it would be different than if I know I'm going to be seeing you every week, maybe for the rest of my life. You know, like I'm going to listen a little closer to my relatives because I'm going to see them, you know, at all these events and different things. I might tolerate them more or less, <laughs> you know, knowing that we have a more permanent relationship than if you do just a six week group visit program and people know that it's going to end 
already you're at a disadvantage at reducing loneliness, though those programs can be fantastic and, and are worth doing. Um, it, it may not hit the loneliness button as easily. Aha, that's fascinating. So we're going to tell them up front, this is not a six-week program. Uh, this is an ongoing thing. And you, you know, we can continue this group as long as you like. And that provides some sense of, wow, we're really in this together, right? And, and not only that, you're going to tell us what the curriculum is. I don't have diabetes here in Lawrence uh, with minimal resources. You do. What do you need? <laughs> what should this group be about? What should our activity be? You know, I, I think a lot of times the clinicians try and say, this is my curriculum. And that works for an empowered group. You know, so that is a very effective strategy if you have well-educated patients or people who have a lot of resources. You know, go eat pomegranates. Okay, I'll go buy a pomegranate. But, um, you know, I work with people who that's not always the case, right? So if I said, go eat a pomegranate, it would be, I can afford it. Where do you buy them? You know, my corner store doesn't have one. Uh, you know, it, it just wouldn't, wouldn't work out. Uh, so we have to then say, well, instead of pomegranates, what can you buy? And what is available to you? And what would you do? And okay, maybe we can eat differently. Can we exercise differently? <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, it, um, when you build something, you feel more connected to it. And so uh, that's the feeling I want my patients to feel about the group is that not only are they part of it, they made it. This group would not be the same if you weren't here giving us your advice. I'm, you know, constantly saying there aren't good doctors, there are only good patients, right? It's, it's, uh, and um, I'd like you to be a good patient. <laughs> what can I do to help you be a good patient? You know, and, and um, you know, sometimes it's meant gardening. Sometimes it's been offering exercise classes. In our community, it's mainly things about stress, stress reduction. Um, and, and then as, as a group gets older, <laughs> you know, it just becomes like, I'm going to go see my friends, you know, and, and while I'm there, Dr. Gelly might check my blood sugar, you know, and while I'm there, you know, we've had some of our best groups have just been about how to cook an egg, you know, like, 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 you know, eggs uh, have become healthy again, you know, maybe five years ago, they said it, but, but it's really being adopted. People thought they weren't healthy because they had high cholesterol. Now people are saying it's a whole food. It's very healthy. Um, and uh, so then you talk to a group and you say, Hey, we should eat more eggs. And then there starts to be an argument about hard boiled scrambled, you know, what's the best way to scramble an egg? What's the best way to hard boil an egg? So, I mean, you could spend weeks doing these things. Do you know that some people put the egg in the water, then turn the heat on? Some people turn the heat on and then put the egg in the water. Some people time it for exactly seven minutes. Some people think of so, the relationships that build when you know how someone boils an egg. Your, so your primary objective in a group is to form those relationships and any, any amount yeah. of medical information, uh, education is completely secondary. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, yeah it is. And, um, you know, people only learn when they're ready to learn, you know, and the best way people learn is actually by doing, you know, and, and it's a multimodal education approach. You know, some people, you know, I, I don't think there's, they've shown there's any truth to there's visual learners or auditory learners. 
But if you keep on finding different ways so that, you know, now someone might go home and eat an egg because they saw someone cooks it this way and they want to try it that way. That's a much more effective way to get people to eat these healthy eggs that we've decided than for me to just say eggs are really healthy and here are the benefits. Okay. You know, so I'm kind of controlling the curriculum slightly. You know, we're going to talk about eggs today, but how they want to learn about it and pursue it. And, and by the way, I don't need anyone to eat eggs out there <laughs> who might listen to this podcast, you know, if you don't think they're healthy, but um, I do. <laughs> so this is, yeah, I'm a big believer in doing, not learning. Um, you know, a lot, uh, one thing that we do in lifestyle medicine a lot is cooking demonstrations. And, and I feel like it's better to be more hands-on, if you know what I mean. So I, I really like that strategy. Um, this concept of avoiding a curriculum and letting the, the, the clients, the patients, the participants guide the direction is another So I, I've had this conversation many, many times. Yeah. It's not avoiding a curriculum. It's letting the patients make the curriculum. And then at the end of each session, often we have an idea of what we're going to do next week or next month, you know, depending on how often the group meets. So there's a huge curriculum and it's a targeted curriculum. And it's, if you, if you, so we, the integrated center for group medical visits, we do trainings on how to do group visits. And one of the specific things we talk about is how you manage, uh, manage a group, right? It's not about curriculum so much as managing how people will, will learn and respond and feel included in, in the education. So, you know, one of the goals of a check-in is of a group. So most of our groups have some sort of check-in is to figure out what you're gonna do next week. So if we talk about eggs, next week I might say, well, should we cook eggs? Okay, next week we'll cook eggs. Who's gonna bring the eggs, you know? <laughs> and then next week, everyone knows you're gonna come in and you're gonna actually cook eggs. And during that session, someone might say, you know, eggs are better with eggplant. Then you move on to eggplant, right? Yeah, so do and, you? And do you like, uh, but where does the medicine come into it? Like, do you do, because um, you're billing these as a medical visit, right? Do, do you do before and after biometrics of any kind? Do you? Uh, so I, I've done research in the past. I've had uh, six or seven studies published. Um, you, the health-related quality of life metrics are really amazing. Um, you know, the first research I did was CDC funded and uh it was a diabetes group and not only did their A1Cs reduce, you know, they lost weight, but I was trying to reduce their loneliness, right? So that was actually, but, um, you know, the, the key metrics, you know, so participation to me is one of the biggest metrics, you know, so people come to my groups. I know some group visit models, you start with 12 and you end with four, you know, and ours, you start with six and you end with 50, you know, you just keep growing. And that means that we're doing something that's valuable and meaningful to our patients. Otherwise, they wouldn't come, right? And to me, the, the part of it is the value is the relationships. Yes, that's, that's fascinating. I love that. The most important metric is participation. That's the, the main number yeah. I care about is how many people are coming. So, so when you're with a group of people, uh, a lot of times people will want to be with a small group. So they'll say, we're going to do a group visit with six people or something like that. And I think the point I was trying to make 
is that if you have a larger group or you actually have a community, you know, your achievements can feel more special. You know, so if you think about that person whose diabetes is under poor control, the, the first thing is the group doesn't make it about the blood sugar control. They make it about the quality of life, you know? So, wow, it must be so hard having to go to the bathroom so often. You know, the, the real focus of a group tends to not be on the numbers, tends to be on the, the person. And then when you can come back to the group and say, hey, that advice that you gave to me, I did it and I feel better. It, it's just a much bigger accomplishment than you doing it on your own, right? And not having this group of people who feel like not only do they contribute to your well-being, but can celebrate your success with you. So I think that was the point I was trying to make, though I don't remember the uh, what, what caused me to make that difference. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it is a fair point because um, something about human beings and groups and society, and, and it used to be, if you were um, banished from Rome or excommunicated from the church, it was it was akin to death, right? Sure, yeah. And the, the one thing that I'm starting to research now and finding that it's a big, it's a big topic, it's something that's going to take me probably the rest of my career, is the group inclusion effect. So this is something that I named and I wrote a small article about it about two years ago in the Journal of Alternative and Complementary Medicine. And I think that when people are together in groups, all the outcomes are better. And uh, there's a lot of evidence to it. And, and when you go back and you look at some of the most successful treatments, you know, John Kabat-Zinn and his work on intention and, and breathing, and uh, they were done in groups. But the research will say it wasn't the group, it was the program. And time and time again, I think the programs are probably great, but the fact that they were done in a group added this extra bonus of success. And so I call that the group inclusion effect. And, um, you know, so if, if you are getting success with people treating their, I'm using diabetes as an example today, I guess. You know, if you had people in a group, you're going to get a little bit more, almost like a placebo effect, except for we kind of think we know what's happening. <laughs> you know, we, we think it's maybe less loneliness or less anxiety or a feeling of support. But the, the group inclusion effect has not been measured. And I feel like that's something that would be really show without a doubt the power of group medical visits and group visits in general. It would be interesting to do a study comparing a cohort who never gets together to a cohort that goes through a group. And maybe you could do two, two treatment arms. One is in-person group and another one's the Zoom group. And, what, uh, we, what we have now is, so we're, de we're designing studies. So the Integrated Center for Group Medical Visit is, you know, part of it is to innovate. And um, so COVID has forced us to have our acupuncture done individually. We usually have acupuncture done in groups. And so this is one, for instance, where uh, we're trying to figure out the best way. You know, it can't be randomized controlled research. You know, it's, it's just, this has just happened. But as people reintegrate into the groups, 
uh, we'll be able to say, hey, what was more effective, the individual acupuncture sessions or the acupuncture sessions that happened in an acupuncture group? And, uh, you know, we're trying to figure out what are the key questions. And uh, there's so much that goes into feeling included in a group. Uh, it's, it's, you know, I, I know a lot about loneliness, but it turns, you know, that metaphor where you're touching an elephant and one person's touching the trunk and says, oh, it's a hose. And someone's touching the tail and says, no, it's a broom. And someone's touching, you know, the body and says, no, it's a massive rock, you know, or the tusk. It's, you know, lonely, uh, group visits are, the group inclusion affects the same way. You know, so, uh, you know, loneliness is part of it. Uh, grieving and mourning the processes that people go through seems to be part of it. Um, uh, what was I looking at recently? Uh, um, you know, th there are just a, a lot of aspects to, um, to what goes into feeling included in a group. I think uh, I remember reading that... Um... That, that among breast cancer survivors, those who are put in a uh, survival survivors group have like half the death rate compared to those who are not. I mean, something dramatic and unbelievable like that. Have you read oh, that? Oh yeah, sorry. There, there are ton of tons of examples like that. The research of uh, diabetes management, the, the prenatal group visits, the outcomes, there's less fetal mortality, right? <laughs> Yeah, less uh, in, less preterm preterm labors. Uh, so you know, it's really been shown that that groups can be uh, almost every group that's published is superior. I don't know if there's some sort of bias against. Maybe if someone doesn't have a positive outcome, they don't try and publish it. Of course, there's some you know, research is a funny thing. But you know, even even uh, gossip. That gossip was the thing I was looking at recently. I'd always assumed gossip was bad. And there's some research showing that if there's good gossip going on, it means that people care. <laughs> They're mm. connected. They're wondering what someone else thinks. If you go into a workplace and no one talks to you about things, it's not as good. And, and that was surprising to me. And, and I think that's part of this group inclusion effect. You know, what are the, the things that, that really make you feel like part of something bigger than yourself? And, and I think when we find out what those are, though I think we kind of know, but when we really know what they are, that, that's when we'll have the most effective group visits. And of course, I, I think it's this empowerment model that we've been doing for years, but, but that may not be the whole story. And uh, you know, how do you keep the introverts uh, from not hating the extroverts who are talking too much, right? How do you keep uh, you know, someone who feels they know everything from yelling out all the answers to everyone else all the time. You know? Yes, that is an art, isn't it? Yes, it is. The, every group seems to have uh, one or more of those and uh, <laughs> trying to artfully uh, encourage everybody to get to speak. But uh, I, I, one of my solutions to that is to say out at the outset that I hope everybody gets a chance to, to speak and, and we want to we, we really want to prioritize that. But yes, with sensitivity to the introverts who don't want to speak. Right. So I, I feel, um, because I know that introvert experience, I, I don't want people to feel anxious. So I generally don't make everyone speak at a group. But uh, if you, I'm going to make sure everyone who wants to have input can, you know, and, and that's kind of a way to put it. 
And then if you break into small groups and, uh, you know, they're just different strategies. We have uh, degrees of agreement. I have ways of communicating just by voting with fingers periodically, you know, so uh, how much do we want to make eggs in our group next week? You know, and someone puts a, a five, oh, they really want to do it. Someone puts a fist, someone puts a two. And if I notice that it's a more introverted person, I can, I can kind of move things knowing what they're thinking, um, even though they haven't had to say anything or feel, feel worried about it, that experience, you know? Yeah, I like that when, one to five uh, system. Do you have any other signals that you've created? Yeah, well, I, uh, the metaphor I like to use is if your group visit is a boat, and you're letting the group choose where you're going to go. You want the extroverts to be the wind pushing the boat. And you want the introverts to be the rudder guiding where the boat goes. And if you kind of keep that in mind, um, you'll probably have a successful group. You know, often the extroverts are trying to process things out loud. So they haven't necessarily come up with the best idea yet. And the introverts are, oh, I lost you for a second. The introverts are there you know, really thinking, thinking about all these things before they speak, right? So, so really taking in, in all these ideas. And, and um, you know, so we, we have different thermometers we use, which just means different ways of organizing people uh, about an idea. Uh, that, that really can be done more when people are actually in the room with you. On Zoom, we have chat, and chat can be private nowadays. So I could say something like, you know, if you don't feel comfortable telling the whole group uh, if you want to cook eggs next week, <laughs> uh, please in the chat, you know, just let me know how you're feeling. Uh, you know, so those are those are some things that we do on Zoom. Uh, we can uh, break into. So I I like to meet with all of my patients individually who I'm going to be billing that day. Um, uh, the AAFP really wrote. Uh, uh, on their website about group visits and, and set kind of a benchmark that you don't need to meet individually with patients to build them. However, I've always just felt from this intimacy point of view, from making sure everyone has a chance to speak, you know, if they know that once a month or once every six weeks, they're gonna have a chance to meet individually, uh, you know, they can sometimes save their, what they need to say till then. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so that's kind of the models that I've, I've chosen. Um, people can write things down if you have a literate group of uh, people. Um, and then, of course, breaking into small groups. You can be very strategic about your small groups. You can uh, put your extroverts together and your introverts together. You can, uh, the best thing you can do is if you have an extrovert saying what the introvert is thinking, uh, which is basically moving your small groups in a way that you can you know, hear everyone's opinion and you have the extrovert report back to the group what they've heard. And of course, they'll, they'll reflect the introvert's ideas. So yeah, a lot of things can be done to, to make sure everyone feels included, but not in an anxious way. You know, you don't want people, you know, anxiety is a, a, a real discouragement to groups for some people. You know, they're worried about what they're going to say. They're worried about what other people are going to think. Uh, they don't like public speaking. You know, so, so the extrovert, I don't tend to worry about. Like, they're going to love groups. Yeah, I'm going to go there. I'm going to meet people. I'm going to talk to people. 
So, you know, you really, if you were going to put attention to people, it would be the quieter ones, just check in with them, make sure they know that they're cared for. And, and often they'll say, no, I'm happy not speaking. <laughs> Do you ever, uh, when, when you create groups, is, is it always sort of ad hoc, like uh, nobody has anything in common and we're just going to, we're just going to form make a um, some kind of chemistry and move forward, or do you have do you have it based around themes, or what do you do strategically there? Yeah, so um, this is something that I learned. It took many years, and you can't always do this. You need a, a fairly large practice. Uh, but we used to group people by disease. You know, when I first started, we had the diabetes group, right? And then you have the chronic pain group, and then you do the whatever. Now we group people more by interest. And so we have, you know, and so you tend to, who would come to the early morning rigorous exercise group? You know, is it your older patients who have chronic pain? Probably not, right? So, so we've had groups that uh, kind of develop their personality and there are some stereotypical things, you know, like we had one exercise group that was mainly men and they would do more weightlifting and, you know, talk about things that, that they were concerned about. And then we'd had a younger women's group that was, they wanted to lose weight. And so then they would do, that's what the main topic of that group would become. And then once groups have their identity, then if someone calls or it's a new patient, you can say, hmm, I think this, you know, you're a younger woman, you might want to be with other younger women. Why don't you go do that yoga class? <laughs> hmm. I don't know if I like yoga. Well, but I think you'll like the people there. We also can kind of treat it like camp, you know. So we, we had uh, 26 group visits uh, going on each week prior to COVID. And then with the advent of COVID, we went down to four groups and they were all virtual. And then next week we're opening up again and I'm looking at my roster of patients. And I am, I'm honestly saying, who do I think would, would enjoy being with one another? And the characteristics, I can do that because I've known my patients for a long time. Many of them have been in groups for years with me. So as we reopen our groups, they say, hey, I really want to make sure I'm with Sally. I really want to be with Jorge. You know, make sure I'm in a group with this person. And, um, you know, that works. We, we also have a bit of a menu. So some of the groups you can't, you know, so I have addiction groups, suboxone groups. You can't just join that group if you want to you know like that's a group of people we know and we, we call that we came up with the nomenclature of open and enclosed about 10 years ago and I think that's the best way to think about groups an open group anyone can come in anytime uh, there's no curriculum <laughs> there's uh, open access to a clinician you know you just have to say I want to see the doctor today that's open that's one extreme of open of course there's a whole and then there's an enclosed model or a closed group and that's like a six week session. You know exactly who you're going to invite. You know exactly, you, usually you bill every visit. Um, you know, so that, that's the enclosed. So those are the two, the two edges. And then you can have anything in, the, in between, obviously, as well. And, um, you know, the, our open models uh, are like camp, you know. So an open model, since anyone can come, you'll see on our, uh, on our website or on our board, you know, hey, we have yoga on Tuesdays at two o'clock. Anyone who wants to come in our practice can come, right? And because we're opening this new state-of-the-art hula group uh, next week, uh, home option or live attendance, hula, 
but most of my patients speak Spanish, so hola, so it so works out. So when we open up that group, you can be at home. We have this TV that uh, has 25 people and it looks like their heads are bigger than real life and two cameras and people are in the group space. And so people at home can feel like they are included in this community of people they know already from previous group visits and group times. So that's a long answer again, but the, uh, you know, the long and the short of it is if you go to a doctor's office to really be empowered, you choose what group you went to, you know, and, and that's right. how people group them. So people group themselves. Do you advertise groups so people can choose a group if they want, like a club or a camp? Yep. So what we've done is so uh, as we're reopening, uh, we've just uh, a week ago actually made a new checkout sheet. So when someone comes into our office, there's a checkout sheet, meaning, you know, if we send them for a lab, we circle that. If we send them for an x ray, we circle that. So the recept and when we want to see them again. Okay. Um, another question, and I, maybe we'll finish with this. Um, another one of your innovations, you have a lot of innovations around groups. And one of them is the idea that every, everything you do is a, is a group or everything can be a group anyway. You do acupuncture as a group and you do other things that people wouldn't think of as uh, worthy of a group as a group. So tell, tell us about that. Even sick visits as a group, right? How, how does this work? Yeah, I think the, the craziest one that people have a hard time is our massage group. <laughs> they go, how do you do a massage group? Um, but yeah, we do our physicals in groups uh, and not everyone wants that, right? So we have other options. We have other clinicians in my practice who don't do groups. And so obviously it's not for everyone, but um, uh, picture our kid, our kid well exams. So there, we have four weeks in a month and the first Monday of every, uh, of every week, um, we start with our toddlers, our, our, sorry, our newborns. Then the next week we have our toddlers. Then the next week we have our, our young kids. And then the next week we have our teenagers. And so when someone calls my practice and says, I need a physical for my child, they say, how old are they? And they say, uh, if you want a group visit, you can come next week. Otherwise, you got to wait a couple months for a regular clinician, you know, who, who can fit them in their schedule. And so, um, you know, people will choose the group visits just because it's, it's um, convenient. But then what happens is they like the other people who are in that group. And guess what? You need a physical every year. So then I say, do you guys all want to come back together next year? <laughs> and they say, sure. Uh, so the physical, for instance, um, you know, people come in, we do a check-in and I say to them, you know, this is a time to, to think about your whole health and think about all the things you want to accomplish this year. Uh, if you have any personal concerns, you'll have a moment with me alone to talk about those. Uh, but why don't we uh, go around the circle? You know, it's usually a smaller group and just say one of the things that we like about our bodies and want to and one thing that we want to work on in the coming year, right? Or something like that. And then people go around. And while they're going around, my medical assistant is actually writing down what they're saying so that their notes are being generated, right? In a way that's billable. And, uh, you know, then we get to the physical exam and that's Simon Says for kids. You know, everyone touch your nose, walk on your heels, walk on your toes. Let me listen to your hearts. 
parts, right? And then, you know, the parents, of course, they all talk with each other. And then, they, you know, when one person says, huh, you know, my son, he'll, he'll only eat uh, junk food. You know, another parent steps right in and says, oh my God, my child too. And then another parent hopefully says, well, you know, we let our kid eat junk food, but only on Tuesdays, <laughs> you know, and only if he gets A's, right? And then you, you it just starts some sort of a conversation about healthy eating. And really, you know, that, that's, you know, that, that's more likely to create change, you know, if, if a parent can go home and say, hey, you're eating junk food every night, but we now know there are other kids who only eat it on Tuesdays. <laughs> and some kids only eat it if they get A's, you know, and, and so they, they've learned some tools that may or may not be helpful to them. For our adult physicals, they'd be early in the morning and, and we order fasting labs and things that we would need. And then uh, sometime during the experience, we often have an activity for them. And so while they're doing that activity, I can see people individually and you know, complete the, the visit. You know, so if someone has some other problem that they need some personal attention to. So, you know, they, they're, uh, and, and uh, so we were doing for pain alone, uh, where I used to work, we had 22 different group visits for someone in pain that they could choose to, to use. Uh, one of our groups is a narcotic pain refill group. I know not a lot of clinicians like, like doing this, but you know we have a known goal that we're gonna try and reduce these medicines and use them safely. And what strategies do we have? And you know, people feel a sense of community, so. I'm just trying to get my head around all this, Jeff. This is, this is a, a radical yeah. uh, change uh, for healthcare, um, and you're doing it, and you've been doing it for 25 years. And it's so, if if you weren't doing it, I would say, well, this is not even possible. I mean, if a group physical exam. I mean, I can understand conceptually how to make it work, but there's so many other logistical concerns. There's the room, the space. Like most doctors' offices don't have big enough space for groups. So how, how do you manage that? Do you have a nice big room? So yeah, you know, I, uh, I've been in so many different spaces and um, you know, it, there are a lot of barriers that are, so first let's just start. Group visits aren't new at all. People have been meeting in collections for thousands of years, right? And though I'm in a, mo I'm modernly seen as a innovator and leading person in it, almost everything's been done in groups. Forever, you know, religion, uh, you name it, big events. And uh, I'm losing track of your question a little bit, but oh, I, I think that- The office space. Yeah, so uh, I was lucky enough, you know, people say, oh, you know, you, you can't do exercise in a group space. Well, I contacted my department of public health and I got a variance. You know, they say, oh, you, you can do it if you can say there's a reason for it. Yeah, there's a reason why this has to happen, not in a health center. It's because we don't have an exercise space there. And so we just got a variance and it, it was very easy. Uh, and I suspect people could still do that. You know, it, so it takes a little bit of time. The Massachusetts Department of Health gave you a variance and, and then you're allowed to practice medicine at a local YMCA or something like that? So our, our first groups were in the hospital uh, our second, well, our first groups were in the public library. 
Uh, our next groups were in the hospital. They gave us a nice room, you know, our local community hospital. Uh, then we moved to a funeral parlor. Uh, we had a grant and the grant gave us money to buy a space. And then uh, the health center loved what was happening. And so they actually built out a new space for me. So the, there was uh, a grant and they used that and they built out a group space. And then I was there for um, 15 years or so after the group space was built. And uh, it was a very busy space, uh, very occupied, generated a lot of patient visits. You know, so people were very happy for, for many years. Then our, our community had some, some real tragedies. There was a gas explosion, and which people don't remember anymore because of COVID, but shortly before COVID. And, um, so anyway, so I moved to my own center so that I could continue offering these services and have built an even better group space. Nice big room, basically. A big, big room that could be divided into. So there are a lot of flow issues. Uh, you know, when I teach about group visits with ICGMV, we do it over four days. <laughs> There's a lot to convey. So it's <laughs> hard in one get... conversation to, to, yeah. to you know, well, if you want to get into what you need in a space, you know, uh, so we would have a Suboxone group followed by a kid's exercise group. So to make sure that uh, you weren't violating anything ethically or, you know, you have a divider in the room so you can have one group leave and then you have another group come in. But this is only if you really have a lot of groups and you have large groups that you have to get into. Well, let me ask this. I think there's so many more questions I could ask you and we could go on forever, but this is a four day training and even then you're just scratching the surface. Why don't you leave us with uh, the, the name of your organization where people like myself can go and get trained and really learn uh, this fascinating discipline. Yeah, so we are the Integrated Center for Group Medical Visits. Uh, we've had in-person trainings. Currently, we're virtual. Hopefully, we'll have partial virtual or live. Uh, so if you take the first letter of each of our names, so Integrated Center for Group Medical Visits, so www.icgmv.org. We're a nonprofit. We're a true nonprofit. Um, I don't have a salary. Uh, we have one intern who we do pay hourly um, to, to get work done. If you go to our website, there are actually whole manuals you can read about starting groups We have a, uh, that you can download. You know, our mission is to just help people do group visits. And yeah, we have different trainings. If you go on our website, I think we have, um, uh, well, we have our conference coming up in September, the first conference ever dedicated to just group medical visits, um, which people are uh, you know, happy to have people attend. I, I hope you can share about your group visits there. Uh, and then after that, I think our next training is in October. Um, and uh, right now they're virtual, but we're hoping to have live trainings as soon as we have enough people vaccinated, huh? Amen. Life is about to re restart. So that, I'm really looking forward to that. Jeff, I'm going so. to let you go. This is, this is just truly a fascinating topic. Um, and, and I just love the mission of combating loneliness and your approach. And, and, uh, and I'm truly inspired to uh, change the way I practice medicine. I mean, we've, we've gotten a sense of groups, but the, but, but there's so much more power there. Um, so I'm, I'm really grateful to you for paving the way for forging this new ground for the rest of us to, uh, to learn from your wisdom. Uh, thanks. And thanks for making me feel so special and welcome today. 
Uh, you have a very great inter interviewing technique, and uh, I look forward to listening to all your podcasts. Uh, all right, Jeff. I wish you all the best. You and Will have fun today, all right? <laughs> all right. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. So if we learned one thing, we learned that Dr. Jeff Geller is a super thought-provoking dude and that he is unlike most other doctors out there, isn't he? So here is the checklist to heal loneliness using groups. Number one, measure loneliness. If you don't measure loneliness across your entire patient population, many people will slip through the cracks. Lonely people often put on a good show and do not let on how lonely they really are. There is a three-item loneliness scale, which is a quick and convenient survey you can use to measure loneliness. Measure over time and ensure that your efforts are reducing the loneliness of your population. Number two, assign a staff member to each lonely person in your patient population. Ensure that they are being followed on, on a appropriate basis. And if we're talking about caring for a loved one, assure that you are checking in with that person or somebody is checking in with that person. Loneliness, again, loneliness kills. We have got to remedy loneliness. Number three, consider a buddy system. Assign people to groups of two or three and ask them to look after each other. Bring buddies together for shared medical appointments. I'll confess that was my idea but I thought it was compelling enough to add it to the checklist, so there you go. Number four, form groups wisely. So here you really want to think about every medical encounter can be a group. This can include annual physicals, sick visits, massage, exercise classes, you name it. Um, also, you want to realize that many conditions really are best addressed with groups. So for example, pain, addiction, Breast cancer, there's research showing that people with breast cancer survive much longer if they're involved in group therapy. Um, so prioritize making sure that you offer groups for these kinds of conditions. The best way to group people is by interest, so form groups that will inspire people to show up. For example, groups of young mothers or widows or widowers or divorcees or addiction is definitely a bond that brings people together and inspires people's interest. Try to guide people to a group where they will fit in. And keep most groups open-ended with no end date. So if you avoid the end date, participants feel like they are in this for the long run. If you can keep it open so that anyone can join at any time, such as like a camp, um, you can use a closed group when you need more of a curriculum or, or for private groups. <clears throat> Measure, number five, is measure the success of your groups. The most important measure of a group's success is the retention rate. Traditional disease-oriented groups experience attrition over time, but when groups are well-designed and run, they actually grow over time. Number six, advertise open groups. Reach out to people and tell them about groups that you think would be perfect for them and you think they would be perfect for. Groups that need their contribution. When people are called to service, for their unique talents and skills, they feel especially inspired to participate. Number seven, ground rules are important. Create a safe environment free of political or religious ideology. Have everyone sign a consent before the group and discuss and remind the, the, the group about the ground rules periodically. Number eight, when running a group, create a warm and welcoming environment. 
The best way to do this is to actually care about your patients. You can't fake it. So build connections between people. Find out who someone is as a human. Break down that wall between a patient and the group. Um, and, and, you know, ask the questions like, who are you living with? What do you do to keep busy? You know, some, some of those meaning, what is going well in your life? Some of those meaningful questions that inspire people. Everyone should be heard every time, I suggest, unless they truly just want to listen. Um, I, breaking into small groups is an important technique, like a Zoom room or a small physical circle that allows people to talk and be heard. Consistency is the key to retention, so keep everything the same that you can. Same time, same location, same facilitators, same structure. That really helps uh, people feel comfortable. Number nine, don't set a curriculum. Let patients set the direction. When people invent something, they have more ownership. Number 10, people learn by doing. To maximize skill building, let people do, not just watch and not just listen. And I'm certainly guilty of, of violating that principle. I, I've run some of my groups like an education, like a, a classroom, and, it, and it's just not as engaging. Number 11, celebrate success. Don't focus on numeric values, but on the quality of life. What motivates people to maintain long-term behavior change is how they feel, not what they know. And that's our checklist. So I hope you enjoyed this. Thank you for tuning in.